Okay, you guys, I hate to break up the party, but we're gonna go ahead and get started. If you wanna find a seat. So on Wednesday, April 18th, 1906, at 5.12 in the morning, a massive earthquake hit the city of San Francisco. It lasted for nearly a full minute, toppling buildings, collapsing chimneys, breaking water mains and gas lines, twisting roads and streetcar tracks. Thousands of homes collapsed with their occupants still in their beds. In one of the most powerful earthquakes ever to hit the United States, they didn't use the Richter scale, but they think it's somewhere between a 7.9 or 8 um, earthquake. It's powerful. And then afterward, fires consumed five square miles of the city as 28,000 structures burned to the ground. By the time it was over, 3,000 people were dead, 80% of the city was destroyed, and two to 300,000 people were homeless out of a city of like 410,000 people. To this day, still one of the most deadly natural disasters in U.S. history. And then in the days that, that followed, the calamity of the great San Francisco earthquake, um, there were these two kind of powerful forces unleashed within that community. In her book, A Paradise Built in Hell, um, the writer Rebecca Solnit writes about these two opposing, opposing forces. On one hand, you had people like Anna Holzhauser, a beautician and masseuse whose business was completely destroyed. And so she just made her way down to Golden Gate Park with thousands of other refugees where she started just stitching together blankets and tarps to make a makeshift tent. And she just kept adding and adding to it until in the end it was a shelter that could shelter 22 people, 13 of which were children. And then in the days following the quake, she started a soup kitchen right there in, in the park that was soon serving two to 300 people a day. Or another guy, Charles Reddy, who was the manager of Miller and Lux, one of the big slaughterhouses in, in the city. And um, at, at the time of the quake, their inventory was, they had slaughtered and ready for delivery 300 cattle, 500 sheep, 30 calves, and 150 hogs. And then the electricity went off. And, and the, the owner, called Reddy or, or sent word to Reddy to, to give it all away. Take no money, he said. Just give it to everyone. White, black, Asian, all, he said, should be treated the same. And Reddy went so far as to hire extra men, hired wagons to take meat to the neighborhoods and camps around the city. They fed a large portion of San Francisco for a week, and none of it went to waste. Local grocers emptied the contents of their stores onto the sidewalks where citizens could just come and take what they needed. And there was no hoarding, um, almost no profiteering. People just sort of self-rationed tea and coffee, sugar and butter, even canned goods, sharing with their neighbors as they sort of camped together in the streets. A policeman named H.C. Schmidt dragged his stove out of his crumbled house along with a couple large pots they used for boiling laundry so that his, water, his wife and daughters could cook stew for the neighborhood. And each day a dairyman would drop off a couple cans of milk and the meat packers dropped off a couple slabs of meat so all they had to do was keep the fire burning under the stew and they could feed hundreds of people for weeks. At night, a local, well-known local musician named Billy Delaney 
would sing and play uh, piano that they had dragged into the street to save it from the fires. And for several blocks, neighbors would sit around their own fires. They could hear Delaney kind of off in the distance singing and playing in the dark just to keep everyone's spirits up. Thomas Burns owned a produce firm, and his house was um, mostly survived the quake, so he moved dozens of refugees in, in just into his home with him. A lot of them he didn't even know. Somehow the water was still running at his house, so he opened the faucets, and a line formed at his house from 4 a.m. to midnight with people filling buckets from his tap. And then he spent the first few days in his wagon giving away his entire stock of produce all around the city. The devastation paid no heed to race, nationality, class, gender, religion, and citizens suddenly found that those things didn't matter the same way that they did before. Scarcity and suspicion had been replaced by the sudden realization that if they were going to um, survive this, they would have to band together. Self-interest, fear, prejudice, even profit motive was overwhelmed by this powerful sense of neighborly concern that bubbled to the surface, kind of street by street, neighborhood by neighborhood. Most of the city spent those first few nights camping in the streets in little makeshift shelters, holding each other close and encouraging one another. There was, there was grief, of course, but it wasn't overwhelming. There was this sense of community and even what you might call hope. One well-known writer from San Francisco at the time, her name was Pauline Jacobson, would later say that this hopeful response had a lasting impact on San Francisco. She wrote, most of us since then have run the whole gamut of human emotions from glad to sad and back again, but underneath it all, a new note is struck. A quiet, bubbling joy is felt. It is that note that makes all our loss worth the while. It is the note, she said, of a millennial good fellowship. Everybody was your friend, and you in turn everybody's friend. The individual, the isolated self was dead. The social self was regnant. And all that is the sweetness and the gladness of the earthquake and the fire. Not of bravery, nor of strength, nor of a new city, but of a new inclusiveness. And of course, to this day, San Francisco is kind of known for its radical inclusivity. On the other hand, among some of the leaders of San Francisco, there was a very different reaction to the quake. The mayor, a man named Eugene Schmitz, sort of panicked and turned control of the city over to Brigadier General Frederick Funston, who was in command at the Presidio Army Base. Funston was this kind of notoriously um, hard-drinking, belligerent hothead, and his immediate reaction was to focus on the threat of looting and crime. It was kind of a cynical assumption that did not comport with reality on the ground, what was unfolding in the streets of San Francisco those first few days. And so instead of trying to save the people from the crumbling, burning city, the army was dispatched to save the city from the people. And he declared martial law, which it turns out he did not have authority to do, but he did. These soldiers had been instructed to see chaos and crime, and so that's all they could see. What Pauline Jacobson had called a millennial good fellowship, the soldiers were told to greet as an unruly and dangerous mob. Funston ordered 17,000 soldiers 
into San Francisco, still the largest peacetime force ever deployed to an American city, with orders to shoot to kill anyone they saw engaged in a crime. And although there had been only a few scattered incidents of looting, overzealous soldiers began to wreak havoc on the city. I mean, in one neighborhood, police had asked some of the elders from this church if they could go to this neighborhood grocery store that's threatened by the fire and, and get all the food out. And one of the soldiers shot one of the men, thought he was looting. Supplies of cash um, were running really low in the days that followed the fire. And so uh, a clerk was dispatched to the bank that he managed to open the vault so they could get some more cash into the system. And he was shot as a thief by the army. Soldiers confronted these little makeshift camps and co-ops, barking orders to disband or be shot. And much of what the soldiers were sent to guard, they looted instead. They broke into all the saloons, taking cigars by the crate, destroying or stealing the entire supply of alcohol in the city. Not good news if you're an alcoholic, right? A woman named Mary Doyle wrote in a letter to her cousin that a large number of men and even women have been shot down for disobeying orders of soldiers. One of the army officer's daughters wrote, a good many awful men are loose in the city. The soldiers shoot everyone disobeying in the slightest. No explanations given or asked. A local nurse reported, I saw one soldier beat with the butt of his gun a servant girl who wanted to get a bundle of clothing that she had left on the sidewalk. Drunken soldiers assaulted women, robbed a jewelry store, got in fights, and generally terrorized the citizens of San Francisco. Of the 3,000 people who died, it's thought that at least 500 of them were shot by soldiers. The fire chief had died in the original quake, and his replacement did the same thing. He turned control of the fire over to army officers who had no experience with fires and didn't know the city. And so all over the city already, these um, citizens had been fighting these, these fires themselves using buckets and gunny sacks and shovels. They had been smothering the sparks that would float up and then float down and, and land on, on the roofs of, of buildings. And um, they built bucket brigades to try and contain the fires. And to some extent, it had been working. Some of the fires burned freely, of course, but volunteers had already saved several neighborhoods. Until that is, the soldiers forced them all away at gunpoint. Immediately, new fires began igniting on the now abandoned rooftops. The army even tried to make, these, make fire breaks by blowing up buildings with explosives, and they, and they botched it and just started brand new fires and made things worse. The story is, is so fascinating to me because I think it helps demonstrate the way that a calamity tends to push us in, in one of a couple different directions. It, it can pry open our hearts, you know, causing us to reach out in friendship, breaking through some of our prejudices, activating love and compassion, even bringing a sense of hope into like the, just the, an otherwise traumatic experience. Or it, it can close down our hearts, filling with Dread and fear and scarcity and suspicion, compelling us to fight one another for control of the future, right? Activating kind of our worst instincts and that ends up in kind of unbridled violence and, and coercion. 
And as Christians, one of the things we admit is that all of us have both of these tendencies within us. We have a capacity for both of these responses, hope and also kind of a fearful scarcity. And if we live long enough, we'll learn that in every life there are these moments where the future that we were, were kind of planning on seems to almost evaporate right before our, our eyes, like some dreadful challenge comes and just kind of blindsides us. Calamity of any kind can sort of place us at a crossroads, and the path that we choose from there will determine which kind of future comes into being. Solnit talks about this in her book. She says, inside the word emergency is emerge. From an emergency, new things come forth. The old certainties are crumbling fast. But then she says, danger and possibility are sisters. I love that line. Calamity always produces this kind of newness because it, it makes us it kind of forces a radical openness to a future that is it's unplanned and unseen. But it's also scary and painful. Danger and possibility, she says, are sisters. They track together. And the choice that we make in that moment um, will in many ways determine which future we call into being. In the middle of the book of Isaiah. There are these two chapters, 34 and 35, and they're kind of out of place a bit from the rest of the book. They're written in verse. They're like poetry. There's sort of this little interlude in the middle of Isaiah. And chapter 34 is this scathing judgment on a people called Edom. And it's harsh and and violent. I want to just read a little bit of it. Um, It begins, draw near, O nations, to to hear, O peoples, give heed. Let the earth hear, for the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hordes, and he has doomed them, has given them over for slaughter. So right away, you know, this is like, this is not going to be good. And, and he mentions this particular people, Edom. When my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens, lo, it will descend upon Edom, upon the people I have doomed to judgment. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It's like Game of Thrones in this text. It's gorged with fat with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Their land shall be soaked with blood. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of vindication by Zion's cause. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Its smoke shall go up forever from generation to generation. It shall lie in waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. (laughs) Okay, so who are these people that that the Lord is so angry with? Well, Edom's mentioned often in the scriptures because they're often a threat to Israel. And the word actually in Hebrew, Edom, means red. And it comes from, remember the story of Jacob and Esau? Um, They were twins, and Esau was born first, and then Jacob comes out, it says, grasping at his heels, trying to pull him back so he can be the firstborn son. And the Bible says that when he was born, Esau appeared red all over like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. He had this pink complexion and all this thick red hair, so they named him Esau, but his nickname was Red, or in Hebrew, 
Edom. The Edomites are descendants of Red, of, of Esau. Edom was later conquered by King Saul, but not fully subdued. And David had to finish the job. And for a while, they became a vassal state under Israel until this really big offense occurred. It was when Nebuchadnezzar had come down from Babylon and was laying siege to Jerusalem. The Edomites joined with Babylon. They, they betrayed their brothers and, and joined with the enemies of Israel. It's part of why they were destroyed and sent into exile. And so Israel despised Edom. They had betrayed their brothers and participated in the destruction of, of the temple in Jerusalem and God's people. And so Isaiah here gives voice to Israel's desire for revenge on Edom. And it's way over, over the top. Like this resentment is just bubbling, this yearning for, you know, payback. Um, Walter Brueggemann, Old Testament scholar, says that yearning and resentment give rise together to extravagant rhetoric that may run beyond reasoned faith, I would say so. The sort of rhetoric unleashed, he says, in therapy, when the floodgates of resentment too long closed are finally opened on the raging silence and everything is grossly overstated. It's perfect. It's like a patient in therapy, just going off. Israel distorts the facts and they rant and rave, it's, and it's, it's bloodlust, right? Turn their rivers to pitch. Their land is sulfur, rend Edom desolate. That's what we want. And it's, it's really a gross overreaction by any standards, especially when you think what Edom had done was just business. It was just business as usual in the ancient world. It's just survival. Israel had done the same thing other times. But Isaiah seems to be doing this on purpose. It's, it's like this little therapy session where they rage against everyone. They just get it all out. And all their you know, legitimate complaints are grossly overstated. And then comes Isaiah 35, still in verse, still this interlude. And it sort of comes out of nowhere and directly contradicts the previous chapter. Let me read it. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, it says. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of fearful heart, be strong and do not fear. Here is your God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. A highway shall be there and it shall be called the holy way. It shall be for God's people. And no traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast come upon it, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sigh, er, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now, Israel had basically been annihilated as a country, as a nation at this point. And then along comes Isaiah with this glowing report of a future that's going to be much better 
than the past. And it's this powerful and poetic word of comfort for a people who just lost everything, right? With their weak hands and feeble knees, fearful hearts and obscured vision, with blind eyes and deaf ears and broken bodies and speechless tongues, comes this kind of weird song or poem. And it's, it's out of place. Isaiah's talking to a people who have nothing left. And they're overwhelmed by despair and weariness. And they're, in their kind of existential crisis, they're dying for a little payback. They're just living in, in the aftermath of calamity. And their prophet has just laid before them these two options for what to do with their grief. They can activate their worst instincts and choose revenge, lay waste to the Edomites so they can let the calamity kind of pry open their hearts, help them drop their prejudices, maybe find a little compassion to bring a sense of hope from this traumatic experience. And what the prophet says is that only this second path can lead them to the future that they want, a good future. You know, we often say that prophets are the ones who bring the bad news, and they do. I mean, the, the, the prophets point out all the problems. They, they kind of say the quiet part out loud, and it's annoyingly honest. And so the prophets are always just a little bit out of step with their own people because they're always saying the things that nobody wants to hear. It's usually bad news about injustice and idolatry and corruption. But sometimes going against the grain for the prophet means speaking a word of hope in the midst of calamity. A word of hope against like the drumbeat for revenge. Hope when everybody has kind of lost hope and just wants to lash out at those they see as the problem. The prophet comes along and says, there's another way forward. Like, it doesn't have to be like chapter 34. We can, we can go with chapter 35 and choose to hope that the Lord will come to help us, that the Lord will lift us up, that there's actually reason to hope. And this is what I think. I think for all of us, in the time in which we're living, in this place, I think part of the preparation of Advent for us this year involves thinking about these two options and maybe learning to do what Isaiah was trying to do for his people. I think that's because um, our world in the aftermath of a global pandemic is still a really troubled place. Everything feels just a little bit unstable and precarious. Like, does anybody else feel that? same thing and I'm not saying like the sky is falling I'm just saying that the pandemic was kind of like our San Francisco earthquake and fire it was a calamity of epic proportion that hit all of us and we've kind of just barely begun to um, understand it much less reckon with what it's done to us and in its aftermath everything still feels a little fragile you know just a little frail and you don't have to look very hard to see evidence of other things to worry about like our sharp political divides that you know just these tribal factions that want to tear each other apart right-wing nationalism is on the rise around the world like democracies that we thought were stable 
even our own, are, are fighting for their lives against kind of this far-right authoritarian movement that's rising up all over the place. Christian nationalism is on the rise in the U.S. Many, many churches have just, like, been co-opted by it. I mean, I never thought I would see this stuff again in my lifetime, you guys. But it's here. And it's not just one thing. It's a bunch of things at the same time. Political violence in our own nation's capital. The war in Ukraine just sitting there right on Europe's doorstep. Tensions with China and the U.S. just kind of growing tension, strain, and conflict. Economic uncertainty, inflation, a, a troubled and, and changing economy. Climate change impacting more and more of our lives. Systemic racism, and like shameful violence toward people of color. Economic injustice and inequality that seems to be growing and growing. I mean, our a society feels like it's kind of in crisis or facing possible crises because the entire world is. All the nations, all the systems are, are in crisis. And this is the world that we're living in right now. And the first prophetic move is to do our best to try to tell the, the truth about it, to say this is, this is the world. And then... As we do this, we have to remember that there's a danger that facing up to calamity can lead to. Things like blaming and, and scapegoating, a desire for revenge on those who we think have you know, brought us to the brink, or even just cynicism and despair. I mean, it's a pretty radical move to meet things head on, like to tell the truth and name the crisis and admit if we don't change course, it's going to go really bad. But I think the most radical prophetic move is to do what Isaiah does in chapter 35, to, to push through the bad news until we come to a place of hope. That's a radical move. Just get, get through the like prophetic therapy session of Isaiah 34 and, and, and then make that truly radical move to, to follow all of that with a sense of hope that God will show up in the world and deliver us from the mess that we have made and will somehow lead us home to peace, to shalom. I can't think of anything more important for us to, to do as a church during Advent, living with so much heaviness in our own lives personally and just in the world around us and to look deep within ourselves and try to find a place of neighborly concern and, and try to live from that place toward a hopeful future for ourselves and, and just for the world, even for our enemies. And Advent is, this, is an exile season, right? It's it's the aftermath of calamity, where we face these two choices. And Advent is also a kind of a penitential season. It's a season where, we're, where we go away a little bit. We draw back a little bit and try to open up some space to, to learn to do this. We, we quiet ourselves down. We take a posture of patience and waiting. And, and then we work together to, fry, to try to find a place of hope in the midst of chaos and despair and all that threatens the world. To live from hope 
instead of despair or anger or desire for revenge. That's, that's the Advent move. And I just confess to you, as your pastor, I'm in a season in which I feel like I'm really struggling with a lot more anger than usual. Like, I'm trying not to look at Kristen right now because she's going, yeah. <laughs> I just feel angry. Like, at people who I think are the source of our problems. And I think maybe I've gone a little bit too far down the road of despair and anger in, in the recent season. So I'm really trying, just personally, to use this season of Advent um, to work on embracing this unreasonable and illogical hope that Isaiah brings before the people of God. In the ancient world, um, one of the big trade routes was this thing called the King's Highway. Um, it's a busy, busy road, and it passed right through the land of Edom. And on their way out of bondage in Egypt, um, the children of Israel wanted to pass by, and they asked permission of the Edomites, but they were rejected by Edom. It was, it was a devastating move because they, they, just, they needed a way out of the mess that they were in, but Edom wouldn't help. And Israel, you know, could really hold a grudge. And in, in our world today, we need a way out, too. We need a highway out of the messes we've made. A way out of the anger and vengeance and cynicism and despair of our own time. And Isaiah makes this promise of a highway that's so clearly marked, even a fool can't get lost. A way out of this situation that seems hopeless. In fact, not long after Edom had kind of turned on Israel and joined Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar turned on Edom, of course he did, and took away their sovereignty. And for centuries, they too lived under the thumb of kind of one empire after another. Israel, the sons of Jacob, Edom, the sons of Esau, both lived in ruin and despair. And for centuries, this is the way it went. And then around 163 BC, about 150 years before Christ, a revolution arose, and this time, Edom joined with Israel. And they won back just a little bit of their own sovereignty. You know, they got control back over Jerusalem. But Edom had grown so, so weak. They were just barely hanging on. And the children of Israel did something actually quite incredible. They let go of Isaiah 34, and they protected Edom. They strengthened them and supported them. They kept them alive. And slowly over a few generations, Edom basically just kind of folded back into the life of Israel. It was actually a big controversy. The Pharisees didn't want it to happen, um, but, but it did happen. They were included. And so the, the sons of Jacob and Esau became one family again. And from then on, then on, Edom's not really mentioned in the annals of history. They're just treated as part of the Israelite people. So in a way, the prophecy that Isaiah had predicted had actually came true. It's not the way that the people thought. Edom kind of did cease to exist, but not because they were destroyed, because they were redeemed back into the Jewish family. Isn't that wild? All because the Israelites in that moment found a way 
to leave behind their worst impulses and to live out of this neighborly concern and to find a posture of hope toward their future. And in this season of Advent, this is what we're striving toward. One last thing about the San Francisco earthquake and fire. There was in, in San Francisco during the 1906 calamity, a little eight-year-old girl living with her mother and her big sister. This is her. She was a voracious reader and a strong-willed girl. She was also um, innately spiritual, like a devout Catholic girl with this, this deep longing for God and for spiritual things from as early as she could remember. And she saw everything that happened there. The devastation, the destruction. She saw General Funston's army wreaking havoc on her home city. But most of all, she saw like the ordinary kindness of neighbors who shared all they had, who banded together in neighborly concern this millennial good fellowship Pauline Jacobson wrote about. How neighbors just shared everything and saw each other through just an unimaginable calamity. And this little eight-year-old girl sort of never got over it. Just the beauty and the miracle of it all. And she began to wonder why as she grew, why especially as Christians, we care so well during times of calamity. She started thinking, why can't we just build this kind of world? Why can't we be this way all the time? And she resolved as a young, young girl to dedicate her life to building that kind of community. And the little girl's name was Dorothy Day. She grew up to found the Catholic worker movement. Isn't that stunning? As a young woman, she started opening these little houses called Houses of Hospitality all over the, the U.S., housing the homeless, feeding the hunger, hungry, living in just this radical hospitality to anyone who was in need. To this day, there are more than 200 Catholic worker houses all around the world living out this neighborly concern that Dorothy Day fell in love with. And all because it happened. She saw it happen in the aftermath of the San Francisco earth, earthquake. And so it's still practiced today. So if you're looking for a signpost, you know, a reason to hope, think of Dorothy Day, who chose neighborly concern and to live toward a hope. And the impact of that choice, and really the most lasting impact um, of the great San Francisco earthquake on the church at large was the birth of the Catholic worker movement, which lives on to this day. And this idea that there are, there are many, many things to worry about, and I'm like a professional worrier. <laughs> but one thing we don't have to worry about is whether or not the Lord will come to us. I mean, this is Advent is preparation to receive Emmanuel, God with us, the God who comes to us, who refuses to leave us alone in the darkness and the pain and the struggle of life. Like we said, um, what, like we sang earlier, we will never see the end of your goodness. This is, this is an Advent song if I've ever heard one. <laughs>
Let's pray. Oh God, we do confess that um, we live in a time of struggle and that it's hard to be hopeful. So we ask you to be with us in this time. Give us courage and the strength to choose neighborly concern. Lead us toward hope. Amen. If you would stand, please, and we're going to receive communion. The way we do it is we just release row by row and come forward. You're offered a plate of bread and a cup. Just take one of the pieces of bread and dip it in the cup. And as you receive it, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can say amen or respond however you like. We do this because on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and a cup and shared it with his disciples, this this kind of little symbolic common meal. And and then he told them, every time you, you get together, eat this bread, drink this cup, and remember me. And it's, it's a symbolic way of kind of receiving Christ and his way of living, receiving it into our own lives, being made of the stuff he's made out of, and then being sent out to the world as salt and light. And so this is why we receive communion each week, and also it's why we set no limits on it. Anybody who calls on the name of Christ can join us at the table. So just would invite you to um, pray with me a blessing. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?